Father, thank you so much for your awesome grace that you give us. Father, thank you that um, no matter what the enemy has planned against us, we know that we will eventually prevail um, because this is in your sovereign plan. Father, thank you that there is no weapon forged against us that can prosper. Father, thank you that no matter what plan the enemy devises, in the end, he will be completely defeated and checkmated. Father, thank you that regardless of uh, the, the waywardness of our heart, your goal remains the same, to win the heart of your people, that we would follow hard after you, and that we would embrace all of those good works that you've prepared in advance for us to walk in. And I just ask you, Lord, as we grapple with a very difficult subject tonight, this morning, I pray for clarity, I pray for wisdom, I pray for humility, and I pray, Father, above all of this, that we would walk away from here this morning with a greater appreciation for your sovereignty, but, Father, a deep abiding faith that no matter what the enemy does, you will be able to turn that around for our good and your glory. And so this is what we pray, God. Instruct us as your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So maybe you've heard the joke, um, do you know what the Calvinist said after he fell down the stairs? He brushed himself off and he said, boy, I'm, that's, I'm glad that's over with. <clears throat> this morning we're going to be talking about, the, the title is The Providence of God. And if you're not familiar with that term, providence, then perhaps I will say sovereignty of God. But it, the, this concept of the sovereignty of God, when it refers to how God deals with man, is called the, is called the providence of God. Okay? And so that's why I've entitled it Providence of God. Though we're going to get the, the overarching subject is the, the sovereignty of God, I want to bring this home and not just make it understandable, I want us to be able to see the implications of what we're going to talk about this morning more than just some philosophical concept that can really blow your mind, but something that's very practical and truly is throughout Scripture um, but as Christians, and, and not just Christians, let me say this, the world wrestles with this topic of the sovereignty of God. Um, how many of you have ever seen any of the Terminator movies? Seen some of the Terminator movies? The, the, one of the things that they talk about, well the idea in the very first one is that Skynet is this um, computer... A program that basically takes over the world, creates its own machines, and through these machines take over the world, and man is trying to rebel against it, rebel against Skynet and his machines to take back the world. So, John, what's his last name? Connors, Connors thank you. John Connor, uh, he's in the future, and he comes up with this that brilliant idea They've discovered this ability to send people back in time. And if we do that, then we can destroy Skynet. Well, Skynet does this. And in order to keep John Connor and his forces from overthrowing him, Skynet sends back Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he sends him back into the past to kill, um, what is her name? Sarah Connor. Sarah Connor. Thank you. Connor? Connors? Connors. Connor. Connor. Sarah Connor. 
but she's protected. Okay. Now we won't get into all of the uh, nuances of the movie, but just this concept of time travel is mind blowing. Mm-hmm. And the refrain throughout all of the movies is the future is not set. The future is not set. I want to call that statement into question. <clears throat> because here's what I'm going to say. Scripture makes it very clear, and I'm so I'm going to erase this first question mark. Let me just read through this for the sake of those who are listening. On the board I have God knows all things. Number two, God wills all things. Number three, God plans all things. Number four, God causes all things. Number five, God is responsible for all things, including evil and sin. And conclusion, God is evil or sinful. So what we're going to do is as we go through uh, the study this this morning, we're going to ask... Are, are how valid are each of these, okay? Now, this first one, let's realize that there is something called the foreknowledge of God, that God knows the future. As a matter of fact, God knows all things. And I'm going to say that is the premise from which we are going to start. So here's what I'm going to ask you. If God truly knows all things, is the future not set? We would have to conclude that it is. You cannot change the future. Think about that. You cannot change the future. You can only change a potential future. Okay? This is what we call choice. We are standing in the present, and there are two choices. Certain things can act upon me that lead me to one choice over another. Okay? I can say, from that respect, I can change the future. But what I'm really saying is, I can change my potential future. Because the future is set. God knows what's going to happen. And if God knows what's going to happen, because he knows all things, again, the future is set. Um, In order to get around this, that the future is not set, because if the future is set, that seems to dictate to us, with the future being set, that there is no way to avoid what will happen, and this seems, underscoring that word seems, to say that the Bible talks, that the Bible teaches determinism, or fatalism. Okay, the Bible does not teach determinism or fatalism because number one, fatalism and determinism are they they are impersonal. Fate is impersonal. If you ever hear theologians or philosophers or anyone talk about fate, discard it. That is how Muslims talk about mm-hmm. fate. There is no such thing as fate, as in. Fate determines things, because that is an impersonal concept. God is personal. Fatalism, same thing. Uh, B.S. Skinner talked about determinism. He felt that the way we are wired, we will do certain things, even though we have a choice, we will do certain things, and we will only do those things. 
So he believed in determinism because he was a behaviorist psychologist. Um, the other problem with determinism and fatalism is that because these are impersonal, there is no purpose. Okay, there is no sense of purpose behind actions, okay, or behind fate, our destiny. It's aimless, it just will happen, and it's determined. But this is not what the Bible teaches either. In order to get around this fear of fatalism, or that mankind <coughs> has no free will in this, because if the, the, if the future is set, the concern is that that erodes or completely dismisses free choice or free will within man. And as we read through the Bible, we do see this idea of free will. Now, there is a, there is a theological framework that, has an, that believes they have an answer to this. It's called open theism. Open theism says, yes, God knows all things. But if he knows all things, then the future is set, and we can't have that. So here's what God did. God purposely blinded himself. So that even though he knows all things, really, he doesn't know all things. Because he is strong enough and powerful enough to make himself forget. To blind himself to the future. So that he technically does not know all things. Um, and if he doesn't know all things, then the future is not set. And man is not determined to do whatever. And who believes that way? This is, this is a theology called open theism. There are actually conservative theologians that hold to this. This is their answer. I'm going to say <clears throat> that even though as we go through this, we're going to feel as if we are coming to a precipice and we are forced to fall over it and come to this conclusion, I'm going to say absolutely not. And there's a very good reason for this. I believe when I get into this, the, the, the chess game as an example, I think it's going to make sense to you. Because it is going to be how we define these words, wills, plans, causes, is responsible for. How do we define these concepts and terms? Now, in the beginning of class, the course, I should say, I drew two lines, and I'm just going to make a very small one up here, like this. One was God's sovereignty, the other was man's responsibility. And I said, we need to draw a line that intersects these two lines, because that is the extent of our ability to understand. Okay? We cannot understand more. Some a little bit more, some a little bit less, some a lot less, but uh, the truth is that there is a limit to our ability to understand because we are entering... I, I didn't leave enough room to... Okay, you see the point where it, it intersects. And in the mind of God, his sovereignty and man's responsibility make perfect sense. And there's no contradiction whatsoever. Our problem is, and we're going to feel the gears grinding today... And we're gonna ha and we are gonna see this. We're gonna see this point here and this point here, and we're gonna say this disparity or this difference. We're gonna call illogical, and nothing's illogical in the mind of God. So we're gonna either have to 
understand passages that refer to man's responsibility differently or understand the passages of God's sovereignty that we're going to look at today differently. And the, the end result, if we do this, is the bending or twisting of Scripture so that this concept of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility makes perfect sense in our mind. And I'm going to tell you, you we have to be honest with Scripture. We cannot twist it to make it fit. We can't take round pegs and force them into square holes. The round pegs would be the scriptures, the square pegs is our systematic theology. We can't do that. We have to be willing to just say there is a tension here in our theology and our understanding of God's responsibility and man excuse me, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility that we need to leave there. And not try and fudge and work with so that it makes total sense in our mind. Now, resist the temptation to conclude that therefore it's illogical. Or there is an internal contradiction in scripture or within the mind of God. There is not. Okay? And so what I'm going to try and do is I'm going to try and raise this bar just a little bit. And I think this is going to be fair. I'm going to try and help us, like with this chess illustration that I'll, I'll give a little later, help us understand... God's sovereignty as much as we can and man's responsibility as much as we, we can. But my goal cannot be to erase this tension, to say that this does not exist. It will. The secret things belong to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children that we obey Him. And so we have to realize there are going to be certain things because we are trying to understand the infinite mind of God. Hello? There is no one alive, including John Calvin or Martin Luther or St. Augustine or Tertullian or Justin Martyr or any of these men with incredible minds that fully understand the mind of God. So I'm not going to pretend this morning that we will. We will not. But my goal is, let's understand these scripture passages. Let's not force them to say more than they say, but let's certainly not allow them to say less than what they do. And I'm not going to say that this job is easy. There will be... Every hand in this room at some point may well be raised. I don't understand this. I don't get this. The, the goal will be that there will be fewer hands, that we will understand this, but let's just be real. We're human. Uh, this is a very difficult topic. This is going to be a platform that we need to understand if we are going to understand predestination. That is another topic that we're going to get into later. <clears throat> um, and you will have even more questions about that. Okay? But if we don't understand this, it's going to be even harder to understand God's foreknowledge and predestination. Okay? All right. I want you to turn to... Romans 12.2 You know what, let, let, let me back up. Let me, let me start with Ephesians 1.11. I know that's, the, uh, that's letter A, <clears throat> and maybe that would be a, a little better for us to start as a springboard into this discussion. <clears throat> In Ephesians 1.11 it says, In Him we were also chosen... Having been predestined, or we've already got predestination, concept of choosing, election, etc. going on here, <clears throat> according to the plan 
of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Some translate it his set purpose. That would, that would probably be a better translation. I think the NASB uses that set purpose. God has a set purpose or a set will and he is working all things together in conformity with that set will. There is nothing that will happen outside of this set will. There there are many verses. This could actually be an hours upon hours course because we could go through all of the scripture passages that would support number two. God wills all things. Now I'm going to say we're going to probably start feeling the gears grinding here because of how we understand this word wills. What does it mean that God wills all things? Now I'm going to say God wills all things based on this scripture passage and, and many others by the way, because there is a set will, there is a set purpose, there is a set plan. And we just talked about if God knows all things, then he plans all things. Okay? That there is a, a, a plan that he has and that nothing takes him by surprise. Okay? So, the problem that we have is, well, if God wills all things, does he will sin? And we misunderstand will as to mean want. And that's not what this word means. It can be translated that word, that way, desire. And we can actually see it that way in 2 Peter 3.9. Not desiring, that's the verb form, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Okay? That is God's perfect will. Okay? So, Within God's will, I need another uh, board here. <laughs> I'll erase this. Within God's will, we have, we need to break it down into two categories. Number one, okay, I'm just going to write it this way. God's will. Number one, His perfect will. And we're going to see that in passages like 2 Peter 3.9, not desiring or willing that any should perish. Will some perish? Yes. Yes? Then, then something happens outside of God's will. Yes. But it's because of how we are defining this word will at this point. And so we have to realize that God's will can be divided into two categories. All right? So already, I hope you're seeing that as we go through these words, there are different ways of understanding this, and Scripture will, excuse me for putting it this way, play both sides of the fence. Okay, because we're talking about, I already raised my diagram, we're talking about that point of intersection that is in the mind of God and makes total logical sense, but does not for us. And so here is Scripture, how does God talk about His sovereignty, and how does He talk about man's responsibility um, such as when he does evil and be called to uh, give an account for it, how is, that, how is that possible if we can say God willed it? All right? 
And so scripture is scripture is appealing to a, to the limited man of mind of man that cannot grasp fully the things of God. And how does he how does he communicate this truth? Okay? And so as we look through scripture, for the most part, scripture gives us snapshots of God's sovereignty and doesn't wed it too well with man's responsibility. And then in other passages, he gives us snapshots of man's responsibility and you're wondering, where is God in this? I mean, did God will this? Did yeah. I guess not. And so this is the difficulty that we're going to have because the topic this morning is truly beyond us to fully comprehend. Let's do the best we can, though. The perfect will of God you can also see in Romans chapter 2. Excuse me, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Romans 12, verse 2. That is not a passage that's on your sheet there. There's going to be numerous passages that I'm going to add. So when we reprint, when I reprint this book, I will probably be adding the scripture passages. It is is there. Romans 12, 2? Yeah. Oh, you know what? That's because I've already modified it in some way. And you have a different version of this than I do. Sorry. Okay, so Romans, how many letters do you have, by the way? K. 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 Okay, I've got up to J. That's why. All right, so Romans 12, 2. And it says this. It says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and what? Perfect will. His perfect will is that which he truly desires, but realizes will not necessarily come to pass. God truly desires that no one perish, but he knows that some will. Because this is the heart of God. This is the desire in the heart of God. This is his perfect will. Now, the second category of God's will is his permissive will. God's permissive will. Now, we see this. Uh, in many passages, I think they're obvious, such as Job 1. You remember the story of what happens in Job 1? That is one of the scripture passages. Yes, 6 through 22. In Job 1, we have uh, this incredibly godly man, and Satan comes before the throne of God and says, you know, no wonder this guy is so awesome because you bless him with so much. Allow me to take away all of those blessings in his life and let's see if he still praises you. And God permits this. This is, an, this is God's permissive will. Is it within the perfect will of God for something like this to happen? No, because this has to do with disaster and tragedy and death. And that is not within the perfect will of God. The perfect will of God could be better seen in the Garden of Eden and as it's worked out in the heavens, the, the heavens as it comes, the, the new heavens and new earth. But on earth, right now, in this age, we see much of the permissive will of God. We truly do. 
So Satan comes and he takes away all these things. And yet, what happens? Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will return. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even in the midst of tragedy, Job, and, and he lost his ten children. I mean, great, yeah, he lost all of his possessions. They can be easily replaced, but his children, no. Even though God, at the very end, does bless him with ten more children. But, man, that would be incredibly hard to accept this and turn around and say, you know what, the Lord gives and the Lord does what? Takes away. The Lord takes away. Wait a second. Scripture says, this isn't just Job's thoughts that are imperfect. This is captured in Scripture and is expressed to us as a truth. The Lord takes away. We might even be skipping down here to God causes and is responsible for all things, including evil and sin. He allows it. Okay. And so this is what we start getting into. How are we going to define these words such as cause and is responsible for? We'll see other passages that are even stronger leaning towards that God causes all things and is responsible for all things. But we're going to have to weigh those words. Okay? Now, Job tells us that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Job is saying, God took my children away. Now, we need to understand that. Number one, that is true. However, God did not directly do it. He did it. He allowed Satan, and therefore God is, in some sense, responsible. He allowed Satan to do this. But Satan then stirred up the Sabaeans and, and others and this tornado, etc., and ended up robbing Job of all that he had, except his cranky wife. And so Job says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. In essence, even though God is responsible in this, he is not directly responsible. He did not force this in, this, in, in the sense that he did it himself. Then we're saying God does evil and therefore is evil. And the scriptures never say that. All right, let's dig into this a little bit more. Uh, we can turn to passages such as Acts 17.26. You're going to want to write that down. That God actually determines where nations' boundaries would be formed and where you would, be, where you would live, what generation you would live in. That's plan. God does plan. Does God plan all things? I want to be careful here because there's not a passage that says God plans all things. But we could then come back and say, well, if he knows all things and wills all things, then it seems like he plans all things. I'm not going to disagree with that. It does seem that way, but we're walking a fine road here. And there's certain concessions I'm willing to give and certain ones that as, as a student of God's word, I, I can't. But scripture does lean in this direction. Does scripture teach it? I don't believe so. Does it seem logical? Perhaps. 
but it doesn't say it. And this is where we need to be careful. We can put on the philosopher's mindset and come to various conclusions, and if we're not careful, we're going to come to the same conclusion that says God does and is evil and sinful. And Scripture says absolutely not. God is only good, and God is all good. All right. It says in Psalm 139.6 that God plans all our days. Okay, does that mean that God plans every detail of every day, or He plans the number of days? Again, Scripture isn't really clear there. Most Calvinists will look at this and say, see, God does plan all things. Okay, this is not something that I want to argue about. It's just that Scripture doesn't say that. It doesn't define what all days is. It every specific detail and thought and everything? Okay, let's just be careful there. God plans. He has a set plan. What was that song again? Psalm 139.6. It doesn't appear to be. No. <coughs> I'm sorry? It doesn't appear to be the same one. Did, did I choose the wrong one, guys? This has such knowledge, it's too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attend. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, I'm up here starting to preach heresy now. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay. Um. It's 16. 16. Thank you. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. All the days. Is he talking about all the details of every day? Well, it doesn't say that. It does say at least God has planned out exactly how long you're going to live. Alright? Um... Again, we want to be careful that he is not saying in this that he is the cause or that rather that he is actually doing evil, all right? Or do it or or has everything planned out and therefore he is um he is directly involved in mankind's sin. Um Sorry, I have so much here. And okay, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. This is where we start talking about sin and evil in the mind of God, in the plan of God, in the knowledge or the foreknowledge of God. God knows all things. And it says here in Acts 2.23, it says... This man, referring to Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But, God raised him up. Because death could not keep him in the ground. The resurrection power of God was the ultimate, or the resurrection of Jesus was the ultimate plan of God... And in order to get from point A to point B, or point G, God had to allow B, C, D, E, and F, which was sin, which was 
Jesus being betrayed, which was Jesus being handed over to the Jews, which was Jesus being condemned by a conspiracy within the Sanhedrin, the 70 ruler, ruling elders in Israel, um, that they would, that within the set purpose and foreknowledge and plan of God, that Jesus would actually be condemned by Pilate and that something would go on internally that Pilate would have to consider, such as the potential for rebellion, and God used all of these chess pieces, if you will, these events and people and their backgrounds and everything in their life that they were exposed to that led them to a specific decision, crucify Jesus. All of these details in their lives came to bear on this one event around 3080 in which they came to this judicial conclusion Jesus must be cru crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate as well conceded to the pressures of the people. He allowed or commanded that Jesus be beaten and then eventually crucified and Jesus died on the cross according to the set purpose and fixed plan of God. We would have to say that God was instrumental in, in some perspective of causation, God caused Jesus to die on the cross. This was his set purpose and his plan and his intention. And he did bring it about. It didn't just happen accidentally. God just didn't say, okay, I've got this plan, I hope it works out. Blows on the die, rolls them, and okay, it did work out. But I neither am I going to say that God reached down and forced any of them to make the decisions that they did. Alright? Now, the gears are grinding. Okay? It doesn't make sense. How can God have a set plan and bring it to pass without himself moving those chess pieces, so to speak? The events and the people came. So here's what I'm going to do. I have a chess set here. Colt, you probably... Uh, I'm going to just choose you because I know for sure that you have played chess quite a bit. I want you to come up here. Just sit in this chair right here, if you would. I want you to look over this board. And it is my turn. Okay? And I think I've worked this out and all the bugs so that it's going to work. All right? Um, if you want to take a look at this board, you can do that. Um... But just, just look at it. I'm going to make my move. And then it is up to Cole to make his move. Alright? But I'm going to tell you this right now. Cole is going to lose his queen. There is no way around this. He will lose his queen. The question though is, how is he going to do it? And I'm, going to, I, I'm not going to tell you right now how he's going to do it, but I know exactly how it's going to happen. Yeah, I do too. Okay? I know how he's going to lose his queen. And I am... And, and this Cole is an idiot, and I know he's not. Um, I'm assu I, I know that, that he's smart. I know what move he's going to make. Okay? And so it's my turn, and I'm going to move here. Now, there's a couple of options that Cole has here. Cole can... I just put his queen in danger. If he does nothing, I'm going to take his queen with my pawn. If he moves to the left, which really won't help him out, um, 
No. Do you know what? I'm already seeing how this is, yeah. is falling apart. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I saw that. And, uh... Checkmate? I thought that Rumble I had here. this perfectly planned out, and I'm realizing right that I don't. Ah! And that's not going to work. Alrighty. Um, but you're good. It's right here. No, because he can take that. Um, okay, so let's just say I, I, my guy is there and you didn't take him. Okay, I'm sorry. This I thought I had every angle worked out, and I apparently don't. But this is going to work, and I think you're going to appreciate how this is going to instruct us. Okay? Um, I'm going to pause right here, because I forgot to give you an illustration that I have read from a, a person who um, comes from a, a certain theological persuasion, and he says, here's how you can understand this dilemma that we're in right now. How does God cause evil, but doesn't cause evil to the degree that he is now culpable? He is now guilty, okay? And therefore he's evil. How do we avoid this? He says, he asked the question, who killed Duncan? Now, Duncan is in the play Macbeth, and the answer is, Macbeth killed Duncan. But then he steps back and says, but can't you say that Shakespeare killed Duncan? So who really killed Duncan? Did Macbeth or did Shakespeare? Now, the problem I have with this illustration is that it removes free will. And I don't want to do that. I don't think scripture does that. I think that with this illustration, we're going to keep this concept of free will, but... We're also going to keep this idea that I am not coercing Cole to make his move. So, what Cole can do is he can, he can stay there and my pawn can capture him. He can move to the right or to the left and still get captured by my pawn or my queen <clears throat> or, excuse me, my knight. Or, he could take this pawn, but then this pawn will take him. He could take this pawn with his queen... But, hang on one second. Yes. He, he could take this pawn with his queen, but my pawn would take him. He could take this knight, excuse me, this rook, and then my pawn would take his queen. So what he is going to do is he is going to, he's going to realize there's no way out of this. I'm going to lose my queen. But how do I want to lose my queen? Cole, how are you going to lose your queen? I'll grab the... Uh, <laughs> you can't grab the board and throw it away. Uh, go down here. I'd, this would be the best of. Okay, so go ahead and take my my rook, and I'm going to take his queen. And I knew that that was going to be his move. I actually planned him to make that move because in eight more moves, I'm going to put him in checkmate, and he can't get out of it. There's nothing that he can do. Had he taken. My pawn, I would not be able to have gotten him in checkmate, but I knew he wouldn't do that. But because he took my rook, I'm going to say in eight moves, he's going to be in checkmate, and he can't get out of it. Because with every move, just like this one, don't try and figure that out, by the way. Um, <laughs> you're trying to figure it out, you can't. Okay. Don't do that. So, I allowed him to take my rook. That's a casualty on my part. And, and within the causation of God, the will of God, the permissive will of God, evil happens. Evil happens to you. However, in the end, our enemy, excuse me, 
Our enemy, the devil. <laughs> Our enemy, the devil, gets checkmated and he loses. But along the way, excuse me, along the way, God may lose, may lose chess pieces, so to speak. Bad things happen, but it happens within his perf- permissive will because he has an ultimate will that will prevail. The ultimate will of God was the, re- was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Satan himself, if he knew that he was going to be checkmated by this, by the resurrection of Jesus, he still couldn't have gotten out of it. All right? Because he would not have been able to figure out the plan of God, so to speak. Because God is a master chess player. Now, all of this illustration, and I'm sure you're probably going to find a few weaknesses here and there. Obviously, the, the fact that you could have taken my knight here before, anyway, that, but that doesn't count. Uh, there, are, there are inherent weaknesses in this chess game. I think there are more with the Macbeth illustration. But Cole, did I grab your hand and move it so that you took my rook? Did I coerce you to take my rook? No, what you no. did do though, is you made it so that... Uh, 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 the most attractive move around uh, forced me to go that way. Okay. However, if I had told him, Cole, if you take my rook, I'm going to put you in checkmate in eight moves. But if you take my pawn, there's a good chance you'll win the game. Now which move would he have taken? The he would have way. taken my pawn. Yeah. He would not have taken my rook. Okay? So I didn't force him to do anything, but I know Cole well enough. And I know his life circumstances and... God himself knows every move that Cole has made in all of his chess matches and knows, yep, Cole's going to take the rough. Based on all of his experience, Cole's going to take the rough. And God planned it that way. Okay, God planned in his set purpose and foreknowledge that Jesus would die on the cross only to put Satan in checkmate through his resurrection. So forgive me if that sounds kind of like a crude illustration to talk about God in this way because Jesus' resurrection is far more than a simple chess game and and putting Satan in checkmate. But the idea is that Satan was defeated at the cross and fully defeated, if you will. We must bring the cross and resurrection together here. Fully defeated by his resurrection. And we are seeing the outworkings of that as Scripture tells us that eventually all nations will come to him And that eventually, all who believe in Jesus will be raised from the dead, their bodies transformed to be like Jesus' glorious body, and we will live forever and ever and ever on this renewed earth, renewed heavens, with our Lord and Savior for all of eternity. And that is a glorious plan. What happens to the devil? He is cast into hell, from which he will never, ever escape. Now, this all happens within the set purpose of God. None of us can change it. Satan can't change it. Satan knows he's going to get checkmated. And he's doing everything he can to take down the chess pieces of God. And that will mean difficulties for each of us. Hardships for each of us. He's going to try and turn us away from Christ. Turn us away from faith. He's going to try and discourage us. And he knows that he's going to be able to take some of those chess pieces. And that he's going to be able to bring harm to you. Just like 
God permitted Satan to bring harm through secondary causes. You understand what I mean by secondary causes, right? God didn't do it, but God did it through others. God raised up the king of Babylon to destroy Jerusalem and the people of God to punish them for his sin. We can say God punished Israel. But did God directly kill the people of of Israel? Technically, no. Did God force the king of Babylon to do this? No. No more than I forced Cole to take my rook. However, there is an ultimate plan so that 70 years later, the people of Israel, under the stern discipline of God, will have changed their heart and seek God once again. All right. Make us a, uh, a case yeah. of faith too. Uh, you know, sometimes you don't see what the end result is going to be, but you know, if you can trust God that you know, go ahead and uh, lose your king, your queen, but in the long mm-hmm. run, God will work things out. You know, a lack of faith would say, "Do what you see." Right. We do walk by faith. We do not walk by sight. Okay. Now, here are some conclusions. If, if we don't understand what's going on here, here are some potential conclusions that we could come to in emphasizing the sovereignty of God. <clears throat> and therefore, we want to make, I'm making a case, do not overstate God's sovereignty. Um, number one, that God plans every single detail. I'm going to say that, number one, Scripture, though it leans towards that, it doesn't say it. So if you're going to ask me, does God plan every detail, I'm going to tell you I don't know, but I'm also going to tell you it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. And and people want to talk about it to try and somehow put God in checkmate that there is no such thing as free will. Um... But we, I will say this in conclusion, we are fully responsible for every evil action that we do. Uh, We could say that um, we are simply pawns in God's hands. And I'm going to say, wait a second, I didn't grab Cole's hand and move his queen to take my rook. I didn't do that. So we are not pawns, or in this case queens, in the hands of God. The other conclusion that we could come to, and there's many, the other conclusion we could come to is that prayer is inconsequential and brings about no real change. Okay? To avoid this, we have these philosophical concepts such as the future is not set. All right? And I'm going to tell you the future is set. It is set. And I know that the enemy loses in the end. And that God is exalted. Christ is lifted up. And I'm going to be able to spend forever with him. But prayer truly does change things. It doesn't change the future. But it does change our potential future. Did you understand what I just said there? Say there. Prayer does not change the future because the future is set. 
Prayer changes the potential future. I'm going to even say this, that in God's set future, you praying was, with, was a part of that. And you praying coinciding with what God is going to do in response brought about what I'm going to say a change. I'm going to call a change. It didn't change the future, it changed the potential future. Does that make sense to you? We have this tendency to... Because if, if the future is set, truly we could say that prayer doesn't change anything. And I'm going to say that's because you're wording it wrongly and you're understanding it wrongly. The prayer does not change the future because the future is set. Prayer changes your potential future. You don't know the future. You don't know what's in the mind of God. And I'm going to say that God even knew that you were going to pray and so he utilized that to bring this outcome that I would step back and say, see how prayer changes things? God did come through. Doesn't that then say that the future is not set? And I'm going to say no. Because prayer doesn't change the future, it changes the potential future. And so we start getting into this concept of the future that really is not fair to get into because we it goes beyond our ability to, to really understand this concept of time. Okay, Now, uh, prayer does change things. That is a wrong conclusion to come to if we're going to say that God knows all things, God wills all things, God plans things, God causes things, God's responsible for, I'm going to say God's responsible for all things, uh, indirectly, including evil, but God is not evil and he does not do evil. Now, I want us to look at something that would seem to contradict where ice whoops, these are question marks, and this right here I'm going to change to an X. This, la this conclusion is bogus. It is not true. It is not biblical. However, as we turn to Romans 9, in Romans 9... Paul is quoting from the, the book of Exodus and he says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He, in fact, he says he hardens whom he wants to harden. And the picture in our mind is God reaching down into Pharaoh's heart much as I could have reached down and grabbed Cole's hand while it was on the queen, and I forced his queen to take my rock. It seems that's what scripture is saying here. I'll concede that. It does seem that way. But again, this is a snapshot from the perspective of God's sovereignty and not from the perspective of man's responsibility. You don't see this interplay of these two dynamics of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. You don't see that. You don't, all you see are gears grinding and, wait a second, it seems like God is, is causing this evil. He's forcing 
Pharaoh to do this and God is forcing Pharaoh to sin. And he is simply God reaching down and, and, and putting his hand atop the, the Cole's hand and, and forcing the queen to take the book. And I'm going to say, we can understand this differently. Again, how can we do this? Uh, what I'm going to try and do is, as I showed you this right here, I am going to try and raise, move this line here, and with the explanation that I give you, I'm going to raise this bar, and it, it may well be very close to that intersection in which we say, yes, this makes perfect sense and is logical. This can be done by, call, by focusing on this uh, theological concept of God's restraining grace. All right? I am not saying that this is Scripture's explanation, but this is an explanation that could help us understand how can God harden Pharaoh's heart and be said not to have forced him to sin? Much as I could have forced Cole to take the rock and I didn't. God's restraining grace is understood this way. That within the heart of man, who is dead in his sin, who is enslaved to his sin, and can do nothing other than sin, Sin is always a part of what they think, speak, and do. They, meaning those who are outside of Christ. Unregenerated. Even the good that they do are, is tainted by sin. So that Isaiah 64, 6 says that all our righteousness are as filthy rags. In our heart, in the unregenerated man's heart, like Pharaoh, there is evil. And it controls unchecked this evil would be absolutely devastating it would have you ever been in a rage so angry some people say they they literally do see red I, I'm not sure I've ever seen red but they are so angry they if they feel as if they cannot stop what they're about to do they they get into a fight they hit they, they say things that are cruel and mean and later when they're not controlled by their anger they regret what they said they regret what they did they apologize if, they're, if they would lean in that direction and, and try to make amends but the fact is they did it their anger controlled them in this way and I would say that is similar to sin in our heart wanting to dominate and control us not just in a given moment but in everything. But God's restraining grace holds that back. God actually restrained Pharaoh from doing more evil than he did. God actually restrained Stalin and Hitler and Mao Zedong and uh, Idi Amin and you name it. God Hitler, God restrained their evil because they could have done far more. What happens though, should God pull back on that restraining grace and allow the very evil in us to surge forward? We would do more evil. Now, if this is an explanation 
of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. We could, what God did was he pulled back his grace, allowed the evil that was already present in Pharaoh's heart that he is fully responsible for, that evil surged forward and he changed his mind and said, you may not go. Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, take the straw from them. Let them gather their own straw and make their work harder. But they still have to make the same number of bricks. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That is a legitimate way of describing this. But what really happened? God pulled back on his grace. The very evil that controlled Pharaoh surged forward. And he said, no, I will not let the Israelites go. Hitler, he said, kill all six million Jews. Stalin, no, 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 kill ten million Jews. Um, Ethnic cleansing. You name it. And God allowed the evil in man's heart to surge forward and did not hold it back by his grace. Did God force Pharaoh, by, by hardening his heart, did God force Pharaoh to do evil with this explanation? Absolutely not. In a secondary way, he did cause it. How? By just pulling back on his grace. Pulling back on his grace was not wrong, it was not evil, it was not sinful. Pharaoh is the one who is fully responsible for his evil and for the death of the firstborn of every male in all of Egypt. Not God. God, God was responsible, but in a secondary sense and, and cannot be held culpable and guilty and, and a sinner as a result. Okay? Now, do you understand that explanation? And again, that, the Bible doesn't tell us that's how we are supposed to understand God hardening Pharaoh's heart. I am offering that as a suggestion, as a potential explanation, so that we retain man's responsibility and do not make God, and, and his free will, and do not make God a sinner. Okay? We also can see this um, sense of causation in let is it letter I or J first that's probably J for you first Chronicles twenty one one no H that's H uh-huh. okay so I'm, I'm yeah I move things around okay first Chronicles twenty one one you can turn there if you want. Chronicles 21.1, it says Satan. And I want you to underline that word, Satan. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. If you were to turn to 2 Samuel 24.1, it says something a little differently. Now, I had you underline Satan because that word changes in 2 Samuel 24.1. It says, again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Now, we don't know why his anger burned against Israel. There are a number of possibilities that theologians have offered. It's just that we don't know. It happened before. It's now apparently happening again. And he wants to discipline Israel. 
So how is he going to do this? The next clause, it says, and he incited David against them. Who is he? Is it Satan or is it God in this context? It's God. First Chronicles 21.1 says Satan incited David. This verse tells us God incited Satan. Okay? We would go back to Job chapter 1 and we would see that God, within his permissive will, God permitted Satan to incite David and, in, and through a secondary cause such as coal taking my rook eventually checkmate but God's set purpose was brought about and he ended up bringing discipline to Israel through this okay um, much can be talked about in this passage I, I realize that um, Proverbs 16.9 says that might be good for us to turn there actually Proverbs 16.9 and there's several passages in Proverbs that so heavily emphasize the, uh, the, the set purpose and plan of God and determining de- determination, not determinism determination of God and in, in Proverbs 16.9 it says in his heart a man plans his course but the Lord determines his steps. I determined <coughs> Cole's move. I determined that Cole was going to take that rook. And did he take the rook? Yes, he did. That would have been the best move. But he didn't know that by doing that, he would eventually get put in checkmate. So we make plans, but it is God's ultimate plan that prevails. The Lord determines his steps. Okay? Even evil, um, God determines. And it it, it falls within his set purpose. Um, Proverbs 19.21, the Lord's purpose prevails. Now, here's where I'm going with this, and I want to take the last ten minutes and really help bring this home because this is important this is this is where the rubber meets the road for us we can philosophize and theologize all day long on this topic and try and come up with nice little illustrations that are even better than this check um, this chess game one um, and talk about the plans of God and the purpose of God you could talk about open theism and just go all the way back to step number one and say, yes, God knows all things, but he has purposely blinded himself to the future, or at least some of the future, some of the future, so that he does not know all things, technically. And I, I have a serious problem with that, because Scripture does not teach it. That is, there's nowhere that's, that would imply that God doesn't know all things. There's nowhere that says that the future is not set, and that's what open theism tries to do. It tries to side with this concept of Terminator that the future is not set. If the future is set, <clears throat> then what is the big deal? 
what's, where does the rubber meet the road? What, what's the implications of this? And as we turn then to Genesis 50 verse 20, we see then the implications. Okay? And trust me, there are many in Scripture. Because if the future is not set in, God is not involved in the specifics of the outcome, then there are things that happen outside of His knowledge and outside of His control. And that does contradict what Scripture says. God is bringing all things into conformity with the purpose of His will. Okay? And in this passage, we we see Joseph's journey over the last several chapters from a young teen of 17, grandiose dreams that his family would be bowing down to him, that he's obviously in some capacity a ruler. We're not told where in the dream. And I would concede that, that Joseph is probably somewhat cocky at this age. He, he just wants to tell everybody, tell his dad, and his dad has a little bit more wisdom. And it's like, wow, just, I'm paraphrasing. Joseph, be careful. You know, don't let your heart be filled with pride. And God brings Joseph through some very humbling circumstances. And he permits all of these evils in Joseph's life. So that his brothers are jealous. You could even say that God stirred up the jealousy within his brothers. But through a secondary cause. Through Joseph's pride. So that it would conform to his set purpose to eventually build in Joseph the character of humility and eventually move him to Egypt where through his gifting and the workings of God and how all of that comes together raise him up to the second in command. So he's sold into slavery. <clears throat> he's rising like cream to the top, falsely accused, ends up in jail for several years. He interprets someone's dream, remember me uh, before the king, and he, the guy forgets until one day. The sovereign planning of God, the perfect timing in the mind of God, and the king has a dream. And it is brought to the man's attention. I'm trying to remember, is it the baker or the cupbearer? I thought it was a candlestick maker. Thank you, Donald. <laughs> and he divulges... I'm sorry? The baker dies. Okay. Yes, the baker dies because of the bread on the, his head and it's eaten by the birds and his head comes off. Yes. So the... Uh, the cupbearer. And the cupbearer remind, remind, lets the king know of a circumstance in his own life, how Joseph interpreted his dream, so maybe Joseph can interpret Pharaoh's dream. And so Pharaoh calls for Joseph, and Joseph says that this interpretation that he would give is from the Lord and not himself, and then he gives the interpretation. It, it blows the, the Pharaoh away, and, he's, and he raises Joseph up to second in command. And Joseph just does some incredibly ingenious things to bring within the, the government, it's a rather socialist government, within that context, and 
He, he, in this way, he rescues Egypt. But he doesn't just rescue Egypt from starvation. He also rescues all of Israel. Because as his brothers go to Egypt, and Joseph plays this little game to try and make sure that they have truly repented in their heart, and then reveals himself as Joseph, now all of Israel goes to Egypt, and under the, the, the protective hand of Joseph, they are delegated a region, and it's, it's a rather fertile area in the Nile Delta, and they prosper there under Joseph's protection. At this point, Joseph says in chapter, tw- in chapter 50, verse 20, he says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it. What is it? Harm. The harm. God intended the harm. God intended, excuse me, but the losing of this rock. God intended the harm. God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And through God's sovereign purposes and His set plan and His ability to bring all things into conformity with the purpose of His will, He saved Israel. Because that was His perfect will. And He brought it to pass. And God will many times bring His perfect will to pass through His permissive will. Romans 8.28, which is personally my life verse, um, it says, God works all things together. Together. God works all things together for our good, for those who were called according to His purpose. When I was 14 years of age, and I had aspirations of Olympics and such, which, it, which isn't hard for young guys like that to, to have their eyes set on the Olympics and such. And God said, Mike, that's not within my set purpose. And I am going to allow something tragic in your life, which could have been a whole lot more tragic, honestly. <clears throat> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you break cartilage in your name. And that's going to completely tank every dream of the Olympics. As a matter of fact, I'm going to take sports out of your life for a long time. Because sports had, in many, in many ways, even after I had become a Christian, had replaced God. And God said, there's only one who's going to sit on this throne, and that's me. And I had prayed when I gave my heart to Christ at age 14. That summer I prayed, Jesus, or God, no matter what it takes... Make me more like your son, Jesus. I remember praying that prayer. I prayed it many times. Make me more like Jesus. Make me more like Jesus, no matter what it takes. And I can only imagine in the mind of God, his response, are you really sure about that, no matter what it takes? Because I did weigh that. Wow, what if God did this or that? I had no idea he would do this. Because I did not see his need to remove sports in my life so that I could grow as a believer in Jesus. But he did. So this was how he did it. Cartilage was broken in my knee. I stepped outside of sports. I still tried. I at least tried running. I couldn't wrestle. My knee would tend to swell up. But um, I, I stepped out of wrestling. I lasted for maybe a month and realized it wasn't going to work. And I just resigned. I'm going to try to run. Maybe, maybe I can succeed in that. 
see, inside of me there was this hidden but not so hidden motive for trying to gain glory for myself through sports because I was insecure. And God said, Mike, I need to do such surgery in your life. I have to remove this insecurity. You're relying on sports to find your identity. You want people to like you too much. You want their approval. I've got to reach into your life through this circumstance, through this tragedy and breaking of cartilage in your knee to bring you to this place where I'm removing this junk from your life. And it was hard. I can remember crying and, and just realizing my life was over. I truly felt that way. At age 14, well, almost 15, my life was over. Yeah, right. Though God changed the course in my life, and I'm so grateful that he did, that maybe Satan meant it for evil, but God certainly meant it for good. That he worked it together these things to accomplish my good for his glory and his purposes. And, and so during that time in which he removed sports from my life and he allowed so many other good things into my life in changing me and challenging me and calling me that eventually I, I felt the call to full-time ministry uh, whenever that would be, however it would come to pass, whatever it would even look like. Still, even when he called me, I had visions of this huge church and preaching before thousands. And God said, <laughs> yeah, right, I don't think so. And because that, that, is, so, um, that is so me-centered, it is, it's filled with selfish ambition. I tried to label it as, oh, I just want to win the world to you, Jesus. And I used that to mask this hidden selfish ambition. I hid it from myself. It was certainly not hidden from God. And God said, no, Mike, there's more I need to do in your life. And so God has brought me on this journey. And he's able to accomplish these good things. But he had to do it through so much disappointment in my life. And you see, we each go through these disappointments. Mm -hmm. We each go through the loss of a rook, if you will. Sorry, I don't mean to trivialize it like that, but it works. And, and we see the enemy robbing from us. Job losing not just everything that he possessed, all of his fortune, but he lost his ten children. Man, that would I am just so grateful that, I, that God did not have that for me, and I'm praying that he never will. That is the hardest thing to lose someone that you love. But I have to say that even that God, that that, that I'm going to trust you that you're going to work even that out for your glory. And in this, in this truth that's so clearly revealed to us in Romans 8.28, that your good and God's glory will be achieved, okay? It will be achieved. And God's sovereignty will cause all things and bring all things into conformity with His set purpose, plan, will. And we can rest in this. We don't need to argue, well, what about God's or, or man's responsibility or, or free will? or all? That is completely left intact. But God says that even with the enemy, even what the enemy means for evil, 
I will bring about for your good. And can you trust Him for that? When you can't see the future at all, all you can see perhaps is tragedy. And the whole house of cards coming down. But there is a purpose. There is a reason for it. There is a reason for Joseph's brothers being filled with jealousy and selling their brother into slavery. It wasn't just a tragedy. It was, perhaps from Joseph's perspective, bad, evil. But can I encourage you? There is no such thing as a bad day. There truly is not. I'm not, I'm not just saying that because that's like a, a, a saying today. Oh, there's no such thing as a bad day. Truly in the mind of God, even though they are emotionally difficult, it's not bad because God even uses the bad in our day to bring about your good and God's glory. And so the challenge is, let's rest in this. That This is such an awesome truth that we will never fully understand But this is what fills us with faith every day. The sovereignty of God. Let's pray. Lord, I ask you that you would indeed fill our hearts with with faith. If we're going through something right now in our lives and all we are seeing is the bad and the emotional struggle of it all, could you right now speak peace to our heart and calm us in the midst of this storm, that you are sovereign. And and Satan is truly merely a pawn in the hands of God. And and that Satan will only work in conformity with the ultimate purpose of God, which is our good and His glory, God's glory. Bring that to pass in this most difficult situation that we might be facing even right now. That we will trust in you And that you will sovereignly work for your glory, for our good. We trust you in this, God. And so we say thank you in the midst of these difficult situations. Thank you that your purpose will prevail. In Jesus' name, amen.